sense with, you know, the Melbourne public. And, you know, you see some really good things and some really very unpleasant things, which is interesting and can be quite exciting. After a while, it's not so exciting, I've found. I chose to work mainly night shifts, and that meant the first half of my day at work was really busy because that was basically the afternoon peak, so it'd be school kids, then city office workers, and then the second half would be quiet drunks and <laughs> junkies. Quiet drunks or quiet and drunks? Uh, well, sometimes they were quiet drunks. Sometimes they were very loud drunks. You know, I had a few fists clumsily swung at me. Um, none connected, which was a relief. Because <laughs> I don't know what I would have done. A relief for me too. Today I'm talking to Miles Standish. I'm an in-house lawyer at a global IT consulting company. I'm also a photographer with a business called Photodrama. And the story of Miles' legal career, his businesses, and even the trams Miles took along the way make up this instalment of Lawyer by Day, a podcast about lawyers' hidden stories. Like many interesting careers, Miles coming to the law wasn't always the most obvious or straightforward decision. I had a kind of bit of a convoluted route of, uh, uh, to get to university in the first place. I was, I guess, about eight years older than the general kind of law school cohort and I guess had a slightly different kind of life history as well. In our family, university was, had this kind of very hallowed place in my parents' experience and, you know, my own path to university was nothing like theirs. I, I failed year 12 at my first go-round. I'd gone to an unconventional high school. Miles told me this was called Swinburne Community School. It was in Hawthorne. Um, a kind of hippie school where I guess, you know, conventional studying wasn't really the way it worked. It was much more about, you know, sitting around in a circle and debating things and exploring ideas. And I'd never written an essay until that school finished at year 11 and then I went to a kind of normal school for year 12 and I'd never written an essay, I'd never set an exam and I had a lot of distractions, you know, I was much more interested in going to see bands and that sort of thing so I kind of I stopped bothering with, with school about halfway through year 12 uh, which caused great angst to, to my mother because as I say, I mean, it's interesting, they sent me to this unconventional high school, but, but they, were, um, they were certainly, I guess, their expectation was that I would go to university and that I would have the same sort of epiphany that they had in the 50s or whenever it was when they went to uni, which was like, you know, they, they discovered, I guess, you know, a whole exciting world of freedom and young adulthood and ideas and Germaine Greer and... <laughs> um, so, so you know, growing up, that that had been this kind of, um, you know, this kind of mythical idea of what the university experience would be like. I asked then why his parents would have sent him to that school. I think they were interested in alternative approaches to education. I don't think necessarily they thought that it would, in my case, kind of get in the way of going to university and doing those other things that were also important to them. But I think... Both of them went to very conventional Melbourne, 
you know, single-sex private schools, and I don't think either of them really wanted that experience for their own children. Uh, you know, they were a kind of of that generation of kind of, you know, post-war lefty kind of middle-class people who were interested in exploring some alternative things, and I guess the education was one of them. But anyway, so I failed year 12, which, you know, disappointed my parents. Um, and then I did a bunch of different things, I suppose. I I worked in a funny company for a, a couple of years that monitored radio and television news and current affairs. I guess my, my key, my two, I had two real interests at high school, writing and photography. And so I guess journalism was... A kind of career that interested me and this was a job that was sort of on the fringes of journalism so I did that and then uh, and then I went to art school and studied photography you know I didn't finish my my photography studies I, I was at art school for 18 months before you know I went off the rails again and, and uh, you know couldn't keep going then after leaving art school, I, I kind of stopped taking photos for a while, well, for quite a long while, actually, and I got a job as a tram conductor. How did you come to be a tram conductor? Well, it's interesting. I'd actually experienced a really crippling anxiety attack once on a tram. Part of it was, I guess, trying to face into that fear. It was also an easy job to get um, without any formal qualifications, which at that stage I didn't have any. A couple of my friends had done it and, you know, it sounded like a kind of um, sociologically interesting sort of experience. I thought, why not? It proved to be fascinating and, you know, I met lots of interesting people that, you know, I may not have ever had the chance to get to know in that way otherwise. My co-workers on the trams left a big impression on me. I mean, they, they were, it was very culturally diverse kind of workforce. And I guess in a class sense, you know, it was um, interacting with, you know, people who, you know, the people were supporting a family on a wage that was, you know, pretty basic. That was really interesting to see and to, you know, it was quite different from bourgeois lefties at my Hawthorne hippie school and I guess the cohort of friends that I'd hung around with for a few years. That cultural diversity in the workforce was really interesting and you know you're up close in a pretty raw sense with you know the Melbourne public and you know you see some really good things and some really very unpleasant things which is interesting and can be quite exciting. Do you have a view on the current train and tram system in terms of our relationships with the service provider and our relationships with other people on public transport? Yeah, I think um, I think it's a lot it's a lot harder and less kind of there's less support and friendliness in public transport in Melbourne. I think I think having a conductor on a tram was a really good way of having you know a, a human representative of the public transport corporation interacting with passengers a lot of the i mean there was selling the tickets obviously but you know a lot of the job was actually you know controlling the tram looking after people keeping the doors clear 
helping mothers with prams onto the tram, you know, trying to make sure that the drunks didn't bother anybody, you know, intervening if there was, you know, a woman being hassled by a guy, keeping private school brats in line. <laughs> Um, and and there's no one on a tram to do that stuff now. You know, the driver's in a locked cabin at the front. Uh, you know, your interaction is with a recorded announcement from Yarra Trams. Everyone's plugged into their device and looks the other way if there's anything, you know, awkward happening. So, you know, I think that whole experience is, you know, I don't really like catching trams much anymore. And, you know, while I was working on them, I, I, I really enjoyed that community kind of social aspect of them and it was about I guess after about 18 months of being a tram conductor that the novelty started to wear off a bit you know getting abused by drunk passengers wasn't kind of fun anymore so I um that's when I went back to uh, and did year 12 at night school at University High in Melbourne had I don't know if it still does actually but they had an adult evening school where you could kind of go back and um, have another crack at HSC. So that's what I did. So after I I finished the HSC at night school, I got into arts at Melbourne Uni. So I did a year of an arts degree. And then I thought I'd have a crack at law. I'd once, during a period of unemployment, had told my dole officer that I was, you know, thought maybe I might become a lawyer. And they basically laughed at me and that was a little bit of a motivation (laughs) and I guess you know maybe trying to assuage the disappointment that I caused my parents to so that was part of it I I wasn't really motivated I don't think so much by an abiding or long deep-seated kind of passion about the law I didn't really know what professional practice as a lawyer was about at all you know other than what I'd gleaned from LA law at the time (laughs) But, you know, uh, I kind of quite like tests and by that stage, <laughs> having done a few, I suppose. And uh, so I did the, the law school admission test, uh, which was quite an entertaining multiple choice test and got in. So that was good. Yeah. A few years later, Miles would begin his career at a reasonably well-known commercial law firm. I started at a firm called Mallison's, um, Mallison Stephen Jakes. Uh, was the firm's name then when I, I started and did articles there. King and Wood Mallisons, as they are today. So I worked at Mallisons for five years in the technology, and IP and telecommunications team. Yeah, I guess intellectual property law, you know, while I was at, uh, studying at uni, I guess in terms of thinking about an area of commercial legal practice that that I could bear to be involved in that emerged as one. Um, I guess, you know, copyright has sort of got something to do with some interesting things, maybe, uh, as opposed to, you know, the corporate group or banking and finance or tax, God forbid. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I guess, you know, when I first started at law school, I had, I suppose, been more interested in maybe working you know, in one of the trade union firms that felt kind of more aligned to my own politics and or legal aid or a social justice sort of practice. 
And then by the end of my law degree, I think I just wanted a job. And so Mallison's, I'd done a summer clerkship there, and I guess I'd gone in expecting it to be full of horrifying kind of capitalist devils. And then I found it was just actually full of smart, interesting people who were doing this job. And I realised actually, you know, perhaps it would be okay. And, you know, it was it was fine. It was, they were really good people there. You know, I did a lot of work for one particular partner who was an incredibly impressive lawyer who I've learned an enormous amount from. Um, you know, at those big firms, you know, you do get the opportunity to work on matters that are quite challenging and interesting. So, you know, I don't regret that. But I think I knew after five years that I didn't want to do the graft that you need to do to kind of progress and be promoted to, you know, partner or whatever. Um, And whilst many of the partners were really lovely and interesting people, you know, their lifestyle wasn't, as far as I was able to observe it, wasn't really one that, that I wanted for myself many of them just worked insane hours and for some that caused issues with their you know their family relationships and uh having i guess had one marriage that didn't work out it wasn't you know i guess i had different priorities i wanted to find out more about what was specifically challenging about that work you know i i knew myself well enough to know that you know, working 14-hour days, six days a week was never going to work for me. You know, I, I, I would make mistakes. I would be, you know, I just, it's not a way of working that I can do. Um, and, you know, and I guess also I just didn't really care enough about, you know, I guess the business of the firm or the business of the clients. I always was, uh, I guess... Could never really take it seriously enough to, to feel kind of emotionally invested and committed, and so yeah, <laughs> I think I learned a lot professionally. You know, I, I learned a lot about drafting and negotiating a contract. I learned about, I guess, professional practice in, you know, a, a pretty impressive kind of operation you know I learned that you know, I guess that these kind of institutions like you know the big firms or the big companies in a sense you think of them as kind of faceless and having this identity that is kind of detached from people but uh, fundamentally there there are communities of people that have developed a culture over time and perhaps there are aspects of that culture that don't really necessarily fit well with me but um you know i think that that was interesting to to kind of experience and be part of that and also in a sense to feel a bit detached from it and to observe it at the same time mallison's actually sent me on a fairly long secondment my first marriage ended early in my uh, i guess career at mallison's and i think maybe they thought i was safer (laughs) offered a client for a while while I kind of sorted my shit out and so um so I'd spent 18 months at 
at Telstra on a secondment. The things that I really enjoyed about it were were the the connection with the business people, with you know feeling much closer to business risk and business outcome, uh, which was kind of a bit more exciting than you know sitting in my office and kind of writing some letter of advice that then you know sat in a partner's in tray and got scribbled on and all of that so it was much more dynamic and I felt there was much more scope to um, use my own judgment and so that that was fun and you know I guess it was it was the late 90s it was a kind of time when for Telstra the whole mobile phone thing was booming and that was um, that was part of the business that I was working in um, as a lawyer at Telstra you know, there were mobile phone dealers making just bucket loads of money hand over fist with these, you know, kind of outrageous trailing commissions, but they were just selling masses of phones and there were some very colourful characters, you know, kind of full-on used car salesman type of phone dealers that Telstra was trying to manage and keep in line. And so, you know, that was, it was kind of fun, you know, Wild West sort of way. Did you interact with those phone dealers, those cowboys? Yeah, I had quite a bit of interaction. You know, we were negotiating contracts or, you know, dealing with disputes. I remember taking a taxi out to Preston to get Crazy John's signature on something. Um, may he rest in peace. Um, but yes, uh, it, was, uh, it was fun. Uh, I think, you know, in-house legal practice had, had kind of gelled better with me than than private practice so you know when I was at that stage of you know being five years at Mallison's and ready to move on I was I guess pretty clear that that was the sort of job that I wanted to move to so I decided to to kind of look for another job and that's when I, I got the job at the bank and worked there for 10 years I think I'd done some work for the bank while I was in my last maybe six months at Mallison, so I'd kind of got to know a few of the the bank people and lawyers. And there was a very interesting guy who worked in the legal team, and he was kind of starting up the e-commerce-y kind of legal stuff within the legal team. And he he was a really interesting guy that I had, you know, he, I guess he'd been a client of, of Mallison's, and I really enjoyed working with him. So I guess in a sense, he kind of recruited me. And on my last day at Mallison's, he actually gave me a call and said, oh, I need to talk to you. Come and meet me at this cafe down in um, Collins Street. And so I had a, went and met him and he said, oh, look, I'm really sorry about this, but I've um, GE's made me an offer I can't refuse and I'm leaving the bank to go and be their general counsel. So um, sorry about that. So, uh, which, um, so I was like, oh, well great um <laughs> uh but it actually i think i mean it obviously worked out really well for him he's had a great career there but um it meant that when i started the bank i had to kind of develop a whole network of relationships with the business myself without really having a sponsor which was challenging but i think was actually really good for me and i and you know for the, for the next seven or so years I you know the thing one of the things that I was happiest about in my job at the bank was you know my kind of network of 
relationships with with the people in the business and in the the technology business at the bank which is you know were my main clients yeah so it was uh it was an unexpected way of i guess starting but it kind of forced me to be a little bit entrepreneurial i suppose i don't really like that word very much but um um you know i got out and created a network of of people that i worked with and you know that that was part of what what made the job quite enjoyable for quite a long time until i started (laughs) to uh, become less happy you've mentioned that technology has been a bit of a focus of the work that you've done when you came to the bank you're working on e-commerce and the implications of that what what did you work on well, I guess the way my practice developed at the bank was uh, supporting the technology business within the bank in in all their legal requirements. So, uh, you know, I guess principally that's negotiating contracts between the bank and IT vendors. But, you know, it might also be, you know, in relation to e-commerce ventures. The bank early in the my time there created a, a kind of startup that was going to be a, a, a kind of technology venture capital company and so I did a little bit of work on some of their projects kind of grew to encompass a bit of an IP practice so we we did some of the branding and sponsorship work for the bank which was always fun you know a little team kind of developed so I guess I learned about managing leading a team uh, as well as doing the legal work which, you know, was another interesting dimension to, to work. Not one that I'm necessarily too sad to have left behind. Why did you leave that, that behind, that role? Well, the legal team went through a lot of changes. You know, I guess the, there were some relationships that, that had worked really well for me that were kind of changed by restructures and that sort of thing. I mean, organisations change all the time and it's sometimes can be difficult to kind of I guess find your place once things have moved around a bit and I think that's what happened for me I I, you know I just felt um, a bit kind of lost after quite a, a couple of years of significant change in the legal team and you know some new kind of leaders and new ways of doing things and and you know I understand why those changes happened but uh for me, it was kind of difficult to reconnect with with the team, and so I, I moved out of the legal team and tried a sort of non-legal job at the bank. Then the bank created another potentially what sounded like another interesting kind of startup. Uh, it was going to be a company that would kind of be a service, an internal service company, and there were some interesting kind of ideas for how that might be used. And so the guy that was appointed the CEO of that startup um, had, was someone that I'd worked with in one of his previous roles a few years earlier. And so he asked me to come and join his team. For about 18 months I worked, that was my last role at the bank. I was the general counsel of this, of this internal startup. Uh, and unfortunately that never really got off the ground. Um, I think, you know, a challenge for an organisation when it creates an organisation within itself which is going to have to have functions transferred to it is that, you know, 
the people that kind of own those functions in the status quo aren't necessarily going to be that delighted about uh, having them moved away from them. So there was a whole kind of, um, I guess, political company politics dimension to that project, which in the end, I think, scuttled it. You know, as it was kind of circling the drain, that was my great opportunity to be made redundant. (laughs) And, uh, and that, uh, you know, being being made redundant gave me a little bit of a a kind of soft landing financially and, and a bit of a safety net. So it was then that you know, I'd already piloted photodrama, and so I kind of made the decision that I would be a self-employed freelancer for a while and see how that went, you know, with my photodrama business. But I also kind of set up my own micro law firm, operated as a sole practitioner. I finally made partner in a firm, yeah, a, a partner of one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so for seven years I was self-employed as kind of freelance lawyer and a freelance photographer. In line with my normal practice, I asked Miles if he could summarise photodrama in a couple of sentences. Photodrama is a business that integrates portrait photography into professional development and leadership programs across a range of, I guess, industry sectors. The idea is that portrait photography is a challenging experience which can really help people learn something interesting about themselves. To explain more about the origins of photodrama, Miles took me back to his time working at the bank. I had I had I had stopped taking photographs for quite a long time. Probably around twenty years I hadn't really taken photographs seriously. And you know, as I was approaching the kind of nadir of my experience as a lawyer at a bank I bought myself a digital SLR. I'd sold all my old cameras um, over the years. And I started taking some pictures of my son, who was about two at the time. And that kind of woke something back up again. We kind of um, woke up that connection with, with photographic images and the experience of photographing. And I quickly became quite kind of obsessed and I, uh, I kind of rebought a lot of the gear I'd sold, you know, this time on eBay. <laughs> and I, I, gave, I, I kind of created a project for myself to kind of anchor this kind of interest and to, to keep myself moving forward. And uh, so I, I, I kind of started, my thing at art school had always been portraits. That was, that was what kind of interested me about photography. I'd photographed quite a lot of my friends at the time and those pictures kind of were my folio photographs at art school. So I, I photographed a lot of those people again, kind of 20, 25 years later, whatever it was. And that project became um, an exhibition. I think it was a, a, a friend and, and I guess kind of mentor of mine who had been a bit of a sounding board about my career. She's a woman who runs a company which I guess designs and delivers professional development for lawyers and I'd been on one of her programs while I was a lawyer at the bank and we'd made a good connection and I'd kind of kept in touch with her and as I say she'd been a bit of a kind of mentor and coach professionally for me 
and she came to my exhibition and I think she, she really saw, well, she's a very kind of creative thinker and she saw the potential for portrait photography to be uh, an interesting aspect of the sorts of programs that she designs and delivers. When I kind of finally managed to get myself made redundant from the bank in my last couple of months there while I was, you know, waiting to be released, I spent a lot of time talking to her and we kind of came up with this idea of integrating portrait photography into professional development, leadership sort of programs. And we piloted it on a, a three-day program uh, that was run by an organisation called the Leadership Consortium. It was, um, it was really successful. Miles gave me an account of how photodrama actually works in practice. Kind of submitting yourself in, in, a, in a serious and vulnerable sense to a camera is, is a kind of challenging experience for a lot of people. Um, it's uncomfortable and the outcomes are often at odds with your self-image. And I think, you know, we, we kind of thought that maybe something about that discomfort might actually provoke something quite interesting in terms of self-reflection and ultimately knowing yourself a bit better. So we tried it out on this program and it was, it was very successful. People found it a really, although a challenging uh, experience, they found the process to, to actually be profoundly exciting and powerful experience. You know, I spend a period of time with the part, well, with all of the participants over the course of, of the program. So it might be half an hour, 45 minutes. And a lot of it is just talking and a lot of it for me really is listening and trying to ask the right questions and to, to understand you know, what it is, what are they hoping to learn about themselves on this program? Uh, what do they, you know, how do they think others in their, you know, perceive them when they're in their role? You know, really what sort of people are they? I try and work with them to agree or, or to suggest some ideas for images which would help them tell a story about themselves that explores some of those things that they maybe want to change. So we do that and we take the photographs and they look at them with me on my laptop screen and we select them together. Depending on the design of the program, they're used in various ways, but often they're used by, you know, I'll make prints and the, the participants will work in small groups, maybe three or four people, and they'll use their photographs to help them talk kind of honestly and openly about themselves with their colleagues or the other people on the program. And for a lot of people, that is where the whole kind of process actually starts to make sense because the photograph sort of becomes a proxy for them and they can speak a lot more kind of honestly and openly about this person in this image. In a lot of the programs I've worked on, that kind of part of the process has been a very kind of emotional and powerful experience for the people. And then, and then in many programs, we kind of finish things off with a collective exhibition of the images that I've taken over the last two or three days. And, um, you know, often I'll have the opportunity to, you know, print them quite big, you know, maybe A2 prints and there'll be a room at the venue, the conference center or whatever, where we can display, you know, these portraits of everybody. And 
that can be a, a really powerful experience for people as well because they you know they may have worked in a group with two or three others and shared their images and stories but here they get to see this kind of big room with this kind of exhibition of photographs and for me that's always really exciting because you know I, I can see this uh, collection of images as a kind of body of work that I can I guess get artistic kind of pride and satisfaction from you know f for me I guess the challenge is to make it a useful learning experience for the participant but also an artistically satisfying experience for me um, so I don't feel like I'm just you know I've got a little uh, list of poses and that I run through and you know that would be very boring <laughs> do you remember the first few photos that you took yeah absolutely very very clearly I was about seven my early childhood was in England and we were getting ready to come back to Australia and my parents gave me a camera as a present and it was a Kodak Instamatic which you may or may not remember they were a, a small kind of with a, a kind of fixed plastic lens and you, the film came in a cartridge and you kind of slotted the cartridge in the back and produced a square negative I was very excited about this present and you know, used up the first cartridge pretty quickly, taking photographs, and then couldn't wait for them to come back from the chemist or wherever they went to be processed and printed. When they came back, I think two-thirds of them were blurry because, you know, I hadn't learned how to hold the camera still. But there were maybe two or three or four photographs where the image was clear, it was sharp, the composition pleased me, and it was just incredibly thrilling to see those pictures and i can still you know visualize those pictures now you know 40 odd years later what was your reaction when you first saw the pictures like what did you want to do with them i wanted to put them in a really nice album so i think my parents got me a nice kind of uh, leather album with black pages and a box of sticky corners to um to put the photographs in so i guess i wanted to preserve them i guess also i mean the camera was a gift to help me make a kind of visual diary of that transitional period i guess um so you know and i've still got that book and most of the sticky things have fallen out in the photos so some of them are lost but uh you know, I've still got the memory quite clearly of them. Would your parents have had that intention when they gave you the camera? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Photographs had that kind of function in our family. They, my, my parents had a nice German camera, a Voigtlander was the brand, and it was a really beautiful object. Um, it had this nice kind of leather case and all this lovely polished metal and... Uh, and they took a lot of slides and so we'd have occasionally we'd have you know we'd sit around a little viewer and look at the slides and you know so there'd, there'd be a bunch of slides from different kind of family experiences I guess and including you know from before my sister and I were born so so I think photographs you know for them were, were had that kind of memory visual diary kind of function so I think that was probably quite a deliberate thought what have you taught your kids about photography? 
Uh, well, they've all actually been really interested at different times and I've always liked giving or arranging for grandparents to give cameras as gifts. So I have three children. My eldest son is 25 and my middle son is 12 and turning 13, as I said. Um, and he has uh, an Instagram account and, you know, he takes some fantastic photographs on his phone that I'm really impressed with. And I, I don't know that I have any responsibility for that. I think, you know, he's got his own way of looking at things and, you know, I've watched him kind of think about what would be the most interesting composition and obviously the kind of social media feedback that you get via Instagram is part of the, the kind of motivation for that. But I also think, you know, he's looking for an image that satisfies, you know, him in a creative sense as well. And I have a daughter who's about to turn five and um, she she loves taking pictures with the phone as well. And, you know, I'll often look at the Photos app on my phone and discover that there's 25 photos that my daughter Polly has taken, some of which are kind of blurry shots of her nose. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I think they're, they're all interested. I remember... I mean, I guess what my, what my two younger kids have missed out on is the whole kind of experience of developing film and printing in a dark room, which I don't do myself anymore. But I remember teaching my elder son, or you know, having him spend an afternoon in a dark room with me, and that that was a nice kind of experience with him. One of your exhibitions was called, I think, The Affluxion of Time. Yes. Can you tell me what that was about? Well, that, that, that was the exhibition that came out of the project of photographing my, the friends that I had photographed at art school. And the title of the, of the exhibition was a bit of a joke because, you know, as you know, that's a kind of legal term. Um, so it was, it was about, you know, I guess... I mean, the, the whole project and the exhibition was really about me thinking about, well, what is it? Who do I want to be? What do I want to do? You know, I've worked at that stage, I'd worked for maybe 15 years as a lawyer and, uh, you know, had become quite unhappy, felt very kind of disconnected with the person that I guess the younger me had thought they would become. And... And the project was about, I guess, in a sense, reconnecting with the kind of dreams and aspirations that I'd had when I was younger. So, um, yes, yeah, so the affliction of time was literally about, you know, the, the, the faces that had uh, aged in interesting ways um, over 20 years. But it was the project, you know, and again, this is all art is a self-portrait kind of thing. It was... Uh, it was really me thinking about who I was and what I wanted to do and uh, in a sense exploring some of the regrets that I had about some of the decisions that I'd made. Could you get access to and photograph all of the subjects from the initial, from the original folio? Yeah, no. Well, some people said no. Um, and then there were a couple of people that were overseas um, that I couldn't photograph and there were a couple of people that just didn't uh, answer my calls 
<laughs> and you know, I mean, there there were uh, a, there was a slightly fraught aspect to the whole thing. Um, you know, some of the, a couple of people that I photographed were really not happy with the images that I chose, and you know, and that was difficult for you know my relationship with them. You know, some, some one that I'm thinking of was a very and still is thankfully a very close friend but um they were very unhappy with the image that i chose and that was difficult um how in a very practical way did you manage that photography photo drama work and your legal practice when you were providing services into these bigger businesses what did your week look like I have an office at a studio and so I would try and go there and work. You know, ideally there was always a legal task to be done. So there was something that I could do that would at least be billable, I suppose. You know, theoretically, you know, I could have developed my photography business and promoted myself and all of that sort of thing, although it didn't really work out that way. But um, so, so I guess, you know, mostly I would try and go to work. Uh, you know go to my office and be productive you know there were times when it was challenging to manage both of those businesses particularly when there was you know a big transaction that I was working on um, as a lawyer then making time for you know photo drama jobs that maybe had been booked on a particular day three months earlier you know, so there were a few times when that was a little bit stressful. And I think, you know, the other thing is that to to actually properly develop a business either as a lawyer or as a photographer does actually require a lot of of that kind of marketing and business development and, you know, doing stuff like actually getting a website. <laughs> um so I think, you know, maybe having always having one to distract me from the other m- might have been one of the reasons why I didn't perhaps develop either. You know, I, I guess I, I never really wanted to, to be, to develop, build a flourishing solo legal practice that was never an aspiration. You know, it was there always to try and be a bit of a cash generator to... Uh, subsidize the rest of my life and my photography business so so I guess you know for that reason I never really tried to to build up that side of the business but you know I think if if I was going to really focus on trying to make photo drama or or I guess my business as a photographer generally a, a proper flourishing business I would have to really uh, I'm not sure that it, you could do that and run a second business you know i think i would have to really focus on that miles has also taken on the responsibilities of being a full-time employee again the company that was my main client in fact had you know asked me if i was interested many times over the last few years if i was interested in a full-time job with them they're, they're really an interesting organization the the legal team there's you know, it's a really good, pretty healthy team. You know, it's a very collaborative team. There's a very genuine kind of openness to sharing ideas and skills and supporting each other. You know, I think much more than I've really 
encountered in any of my previous jobs. And in terms of, you know, legal work in the technology space, you know, it's about as good as it gets. If you were talking to a lawyer who is interested in starting a business outside of their legal practice, would you recommend that they do it? Well, yes, definitely, because, you know, why die wondering, right? You know, and if there's something that excites you that that you're more passionate about than being a lawyer, you know, I know that's, you know, that's a pretty high bar, right? <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, and I think, you know, not, not every kind of second business or business outside of being a lawyer has to be something that you aspire to become your whole, you know, the source of all your income and to to you know to grow and then you know sell for a billion dollars on some ipo or whatever you know it might just be something that can be self-sustaining so it generates enough money to pay for itself and you know it's a way to make your life more interesting and you know to maybe make yourself happier so yeah no i would definitely suggest that that it's worth exploring you know, I think you need to be clear about what you want to achieve with it, though. You know, if you do want it, you know, if what you're doing is creating your exit plan out of legal practice, then, you know, you need to be clear about that and be quite well to plan carefully and to be committed, I suppose. But if it's, you know, making a hobby something a bit more than a hobby, then, you know, it's something that perhaps you can kind of explore and play with in a sense i'm having a baby in may with my wife which we're very excited congratulations about. Thank is you. that your first it's child? Yeah, our first child Great. which is very exciting i work at a law firm would you give me any advice in particular about how to run your life properly in doing those two things i think to be really disciplined about coming home I mean, I haven't worked in a big firm for a long time, but there used to be a real expectation that you would be seen. And in a sense, a lot of work got done late at night because that's when the clients stopped ringing. And I guess for partners, that's when, you know, people stopped knocking on their door and whatever, you know, so people actually kind of started work at six o'clock and work till 10 or whatever. Um, but that's not a sustainable way of working if you actually want to be a parent who's involved with your child and experiences your child as they grow. So I think you, if you can get support from the partners that you work for at your firm, and if you're very clear with them about how you're going to, how you're going to work and what you need so that you can experience and be an engaged and involved parent, then I guess if you can get some sort of agreement with them about ways that you can do that, you know, still work for them in terms of what they need you to do, I think that's really good. You know, if you can take an extended period of time to be the primary caregiver, I would really recommend that as well. But I think, you know, be prepared to prioritise your family and your life with your children over your job and if you have to quit your job and get another one then that's what I'd recommend you do you know your children are I mean your baby will only be a baby for a short time and you know I think particularly I've seen a lot of men in 
legal practice really not experience their children you know partly that's a choice they've made and maybe it's a valid choice that they've made you know in with the agreement of their partner but I think a lot of the times it's a it's a choice that they've felt they've had no real agency in making going up Finally, I asked Miles what the future was for photodrama. I'll continue to do photodrama work. Got some great contacts. You know, I'm involved with some ongoing programs that, you know, hopefully will continue to be happy to use photodrama as part of their design. You know, I think I'll be able to continue to kind of develop and bring hopefully photodrama to some new situations. So in the future, uh, you know, um, who knows? Lawyer by Day is by me, Mark Tyndall. If you've got any comments on the show, things you'd like to hear more or less of, please let me know. I'd love to hear from you. My email is mark at lawyerbydaypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Giddy.